Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday, on the Athletic Podcast Network. Tamper with you. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Sam Panic. To be able to bring people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong. Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. Very <laughs> <laughs> awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention teams anymore. That's what I like to put in Kevin Durant. Trial, you're one with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast. I am Sam Amick, national writer on the NBA at The Athletic. Here as always with Anthony Slater out west, Fred Katz on the east coast, and a guy in the middle of the country that I haven't talked to in a minute and very excited to have on the show, Jay Adande, longtime LA Times, Washington Post, ESPN.com, current head of sports media at, at Northwestern, getting all, you know, institutionalized on us, J.A. You are doing some great things. But also today on the pod, J.A. is here to break down this project that he did that, that I'm very excited about, the Dream Team tapes, the Redeem Team looking at the 2008 Olympic team with legendary sports writer, fellow legendary sports writer, uh, Jack McCallum. J.A., my friend, how are you? Great. That was, that was a lengthy intro, but it's good I know, to see man. you, I tried. Fred. Anthony, good to good to see all my NBA people I've missed. I'm, I'm sure you guys miss being together, too, and hanging out at the arenas. Um, different year, but uh, it's good to see everybody virtually. Jay, it's a sign of how long we've been doing the virtual thing that it's funny. When The Last Dance was up and running about a year ago, it was it was a positive thing. But I'm sitting here, and I, you know I live near Sacramento, and, and, and that content and that storytelling of that project – was a, a kind of a, a real kind of welcome thing at that time. Cause we had no content, you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden we had something to talk about, but all of a sudden I, Jay Adonde was, was everywhere. You were doing every interview <laughs> talking about the good old days. Cause you obviously lived that era. Uh, we, we were going to put your old kind of around the horn hat on today and, and talk about the latest and greatest within the association, but going to try to do that within the context of, of this, uh, this, this project that you and Jack did, but before don't give too much away, but give us a quick teaser on, on the redeem team pod and, and what inspired it and what y'all were trying to do here. And, and, uh, I have to imagine that when two guys who have seen so much like the two of you get together and, and try to tell some good stories that that had to be kind of creatively inspiring and fun, but what was that the project like for you? What can people expect? Yeah. Uh, the background is that, uh, Jack had written a book on the dream team. Yep. And he literally had all the recordings sitting around and they said, you know what, let's uh, convert this into a podcast. So even though the recordings weren't that great of the interviews he did with Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird and Charles Barkley, he talked to everybody for it. And he had these recordings that were done in cars and restaurants and bars and all this background noise in there. So the audio quality wasn't great, but it's all these legendary figures talking. And so they made a podcast out of it and it, and it hit and the, you can thank the last dance for that a little bit because the Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan dream team controversy resurfaced and right. Jack had Michael Jordan on tape saying, I didn't want to be on the team if Isaiah was on the team. <laughs> so right. that gave that podcast a nice boost. And then they were looking for a sequel 
And we decided, or he decided, hey, let's look at the 2008 team. That, that's an interesting story. Maybe people aren't as familiar with that one. Um, but, and my question is, they first thought to bring me in was, well, okay, but we don't have tapes. You had tapes of all those guys. We don't have all these guys on tape. And I don't know how easy it will be to get, get our hands on audio of them. And he said, well, I got, you know, Krzyzewski lined up and Jerry Colangelo, and we can start with that and then we'll go from there. I said, okay. And, and I know if nothing else, it'd be fun to swap stories with, with Jack. As you guys know, right. he's, he's one of the all-time great storytellers around the NBA. And so um, we said, yeah, let's, let's get into it. And, and then we wound up talking to Jason Kidd and Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, Darren Williams. And we just got a lot of great stories of basically how that team came together. And, and to me, it's about how it worked, how you got all these guys to step forward and step back, how Mike Krzyzewski was able to successfully get to these guys as a college coach, how Jerry Colangelo put the whole thing together and, and his mentality. And so it, it, it's funny, we just recorded the, the episode, the, the ninth episode where we're, they're finally in Beijing, but there was so much backstory to getting this team together. And, and we actually just now in the series have gotten the team assembled and they're playing the Olympics in 2008. I got to imagine, I mean, especially you talk about the Isaiah Thomas controversy. Um, that was tough to get some candor. Uh, you could tell from people at the time, if you, if you go to a Jerry Colangelo and talk about what really happened here, what really happened there, um, you know, how hard, cause journalistically you and Jack have an extremely high threshold. And if you're going to tell this kind of a story, you know, you want to tell people what really went on. Like, was it challenging? And did you feel like you had a lot of success getting folks to, to really tell the stories and what happened and not the, the, the glossed over version? I think we did. And some of the benefit, the similar benefit that you saw in the last dance with that benefit of perspective and time and people can be a little more honest as they're discussing these things. Right. I think we had some of that in this as well. And for example, Jerry Colangelo, very candid as to why he didn't pick Greg Popovich to, to be the coach. And he went with Krzyzewski instead. And it, it just went to a, a personality clash and they just didn't hit it off on their first phone call. And Colangelo was actually very candid about how he misread Popovich and he got the wrong impression and he felt a little bit bad that he held Popovich accountable for, you guys know Pop, this just was Pop being Pop. But right. Colangelo kind of took it personally. Uh, so his, it's a lot easier to get people to admit that they're wrong when you're talking a decade or so after the fact sure. than they sure. were back then. Um, Krzyzewski and some of the decisions that he made, uh, he, he really had a lot of fond recollections, but uh, we just told the story of a, uh, he was kind of had some trepidation that, Dealing with Kobe Bryant. Uh, and we had a great conversation with Phil Jackson, actually talking about perspective. So the second episode, we're, we're telling the story of Kobe Bryant sort of simultaneously. And, and we, we, we extract Kobe a little bit from the story of the team and tell a lot of his story and his redemptive process. Because the 2008 team and season really represents the full comeback of Kobe Bryant from the depths that he had sunk to in 2003 and 2004. So in telling the right. Kobe story, we talked to Phil Jackson. And, and even as a guy that's talked to Phil Jackson a lot, it was still great and interesting to hear Phil give that perspective now in 2020, 2021, uh, looking back on some of the events in the early yeah, 2000s. I'm, I'm, sure. Yeah. All right, let me, sorry, let me, Fred, I'll throw your guys away real quick. I'm going to take a, a, a little bit of a turn. We're going to pause the Redeem Team talk, uh, but we're going to keep kind of talking about this season and this league through that filter. Jay, before the, the other guys jump in here, I look at 
the fact that it's 2021, 13 years past, you know, the story that you're talking about. And four guys are currently in the league that were part of that redeemed team. LeBron, Chris Paul, um, Carmelo Anthony and Dwight Howard. Three of those guys playing at an all-star level still. Uh, two of those guys you could argue playing at a you know MVP level. You know, Chris has got the Phoenix Suns out there leading the West almost, the kind of thing we did not see coming. LeBron's hurt right now, but coming off a championship and doing great things. You know, Melo showing folks that he's still got plenty left, and, and Dwight's still a you know a, kind of a meaningful rotation player. Getting ejected. Uh, speak to that. Getting a ejected bit. every and, other and, night at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is that. Not helping his team there, but that part blows my mind because uh, we focus on LeBron all the time and kind of that you know the fact that he's he's still beaten up on father time so far, but you got to speak on the other guys a little bit too. Cause what they've been doing at this stage is pretty incredible. It is amazing. I I'm, I'm guilty of being fixated on LeBron too. And the fact that he is still at the top of the league. I mean, it's one thing to still be in the league, but and that, that, that's one of the things that's changed. And in, in, in the episode we just recorded, we talked about how you have to put into context, how coveted Dwight Howard was at the time and how after this Olympic team in 2008, he wins the next three um, defensive player of the year awards. And he's in the top five in the MVP voting for four years. He's a runner up in 2011. And, you know, so now he's just a guy that can contribute. Right. And it's amazing how many different teams he's been on since then. I can't even keep track of all the different jerseys that he's worn, but LeBron is still the same LeBron. (laughs) That's what's so amazing to me. And, And, you know, Carmelo has found this niche now as, as a guy, as a contributor when, when he was the main guy, but Chris, Chris Paul, it is amazing that the role that he's played and, and his longevity, but the fact that LeBron was emerging as the guy in the league back then. And the fact that he is still the face of the league now, 13 years later. And when you go back and watch it, it is, it really is a different era of the league in 2008, including the, the jerseys and the shorts. They're, they're still wearing the huge shorts back then. Right. It just takes you back in time. And to see what is an early Cleveland LeBron and to see the way he played then and to think he's so much better now, but that he's still at the top of the league now, 13 years later is amazing. How, how did you see that, that that experience affected him? Because you hear all the time with so many different guys being able to play Team USA, whether it was being around other great players and affected their work ethic or just the experience of playing in such high pressure games and different constant, uh, you know, it affects, it affects the style they play. I, I think, Oh wait, LeBron hadn't won an MVP yet. Right. He wins his first one. Oh, eight, Oh nine that next season. Um, yeah. So if you want to know how it affects him, uh, he wins the next two MVPs. And I do think that's related. Uh, a lot of the guys and the coaches talk about how Kobe really set the tone for work. And so all these young guys, so LeBron, Carmelo, Chris Paul, they get to see up close what made Kobe Kobe. And it's something that they took away from it. And to me on the flip side is Kobe got socialized and Kobe got to be a part of a group for the first time, really. He, he was, it was this weird age gap when he first got to the Lakers, right? He's four, five, six, seven years younger than everybody else. And he just never quite fits in. And then next thing you know, he's a lot older than the the young guys coming into the Lakers, right? You get Andrew Bynum coming in as a teenager and Kobe's like 10 years older than him. And so you get um, Kobe being socialized, but these other guys learning the tricks of the trade and and really seeing for themselves what it takes 
to be at the highest level of the NBA. So I think all those guys elevate and LeBron has the, the most talent of anyone on the team. And now you add to that the lessons from Kobe and he becomes undoubtedly the best player in the league the next two years. Yeah, Fred covered a Dwight Howard season, by the way. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, how many uh, jerseys he put on. Dwight was a, was a wizard. What is, what's your perspective on the way Dwight's kind of been a, really, I guess you could group him and Carmelo as redemptive stories, different type of redemptive stories. But, you know, you mentioned LeBron has been consistent, MVP, MVP, MVP. Um, Chris Paul never really had a downturn. Now, his value league-wide was, I think, viewed a little bit down at the end of the Houston days. He revamped that, but he didn't. I mean, like Carmelo was out of the league. Dwight felt like he was out of the league. Um, what is your just perspective on those two and, and, and kind of the career arcs that they've taken? I think you have to give credit to Dwight for embracing this role and to go from being the man to being the most covered. You, you guys remember covering, I remember Sam writing a lot about when he went to Houston, right? That free agency summer, he was the most coveted guy in the league. It, it, it was funny to me watching LaMarcus Aldridge become a bio guy and join the, I remember when he was the big coveted free agent, you know, all these guys, and that's actually where we're going to get to in, in, in an upcoming episode, but Dwight Howard was the most coveted guy in the league one summer. Carmelo, that when he was going to be traded, the whole league was being held up waiting to see where Carmelo Anthony was going to go. Right. And at that same time, Chris Paul was a trade in the, you know, the, for like 15 minutes, he was a Laker. Right. And we thought we were going to have a new Laker dynasty with Chris Paul and Kobe. And, and he was a key guy and, and it almost worked in Houston. I mean, they're a game away from beating the Warriors and, and going to the finals if he doesn't pull his hamstring. So all of these guys have had their turns at being the man and the center of attention. And they've all found ways to take a step back and play a secondary or even a tertiary role. And that's not that easy. And part of the story that we tell about the Redeem team is, is guys being willing to take egos. Dwayne Wade comes off the bench for that team. Dwayne Wade, who was a 2006 finals MVP, starting to rival Kobe as the best shooting guard as the league in the league. And he comes off the bench for that team. So that tells you what these guys were willing to do, the roles they're willing to take for the good of the team and for the good of the country. They really did buy into this USA stuff. Jay, when it comes to this season, I wonder, and this is fitting, we got the folks listening can't see this, but we are on Zoom right now. We got four faces looking at each other. Uh, it's around the horn style. So I'm going to go down that road a little bit. If, if we're looking at, the reigning champion Lakers. And with you having had a long and distinguished career covering, you know, the entire NBA, but the Lakers specifically was a major focus for you for a very long time. You and I covered Kobe together, you know, and you, you were one of the original guys who could always get him in a hallway, always get him, you know, coming after the latest game, but had your ups and downs with him, but you know what it is to be a Lakers star in Laker land. And now LeBron's been doing it for a minute and obviously already got one chip in that jersey, you know, if you're taking the Lakers or the field right now, how do you see that? And and I guess kind of tangential to that, just observations on LeBron's ability to actually become a Laker when it seemed for a minute like we, that was in question when he first went there. I like a healthy Lakers, especially with, with Drummond added. I think we're, people are going to start to forget what they look like at the start of the season when everyone was ready to hand them the trophy again. 
they, LeBron actually might benefit from, from time off as he recovers from this injury. He's kind of been going nonstop since the start of last season. So we know what they can look like. We still don't know what, what the Nets are going to look like when it's pressure moments of, of the NBA playoffs. I, I, I'm, I'm somebody who always gravitates toward the known versus the unknown. I'm very uncomfortable with the unknown. The, the, the amount of depth, and I think it's informative. If, if, I'm, if I'm the Nets, I'm hoping that a guy like LaMarcus Aldridge can be what Dwight Howard was for the Lakers and can be comfortable in that role, and Blake Griffin can be comfortable in that role. Um, it almost seems redundant, some of the players that they've got <laughs> and ridiculous, but I do like the fact that they're, they're so deep now. If there's an injury or foul, uh, they, they shouldn't even bother keeping track of fouls on the Nets because if somebody fouls out, okay, you know, we've got another former All-Star. No, you got plenty of fouls. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You can foul guys out in the first quarter and then have LaMarcus Aldridge play 25 minutes and you're going to be good. Right. But we just don't know what it looks like. We don't know how guys who are used to getting the ball, used to getting their certain amount of shots up, are going to respond to limited minutes. And if they can be as effective when the ball isn't coming their way as much. I'll tell you what, Blake Griffin looks pretty good. Like, when I say pretty good, I don't mean he looks all soft he's for Blake dunking Griffin again. again. Well, he's dunking yes. again. You know, yes. I'm so mad about you know, you know what this has vibes of? This, 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 has, this yeah. has, not to not to this level, not to the level of Vince because Vince was in his prime, but this has Vince last year in Toronto vibes, doesn't it? Like where Vince is, Vince is just like not looking like a guy anymore in Toronto or that degree. And he goes to the Nets and he's awesome. But I will say this. It felt like Blake gave them everything he had. And that, that one year when he gets to the playoffs and he's hurt and he's sort of dragging his knee around there. So Vince wasn't doing that. I, I don't think the Pistons can feel like, oh, Blake just came here and dogged it. He gave him everything they had for a team that was destined. They were going to lose in the first round with or without him. And he dragged himself on the court for that. So I think for that one playoff series alone and just how he, he finished that season, I, I think you can give him the benefit of the that's, doubt. That's very true. I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm leaning too hard into the, uh, the not caring angle when in reality it's, it's the injuries, but I mean, Blake people, oh, yeah. People, I think, don't realize exactly how much playing for a team the position Detroit is in can just be depressing for a guy who is in Blake's position. And it's got to just be revitalized well, in that sort of situation in Brooklyn. Yeah, to be honest, I didn't get to know Blake that well over the years, but by and large, he was pretty good with the media. And, and I'm happy for him on a personal level because, you know, let's not forget, it wasn't his choice to leave the Clippers. And, and they not only traded him, they traded him after they – had that that free agency pursuit where they put his fake rafter or jersey in the rafters and told him they were going to retire it and and basically secured the asset quote unquote and then you know sent them to Detroit because it wasn't working that for him. So do we have a Clipper? You, you thought Blake was going to get his jersey up as it stands now. Yeah, I don't think we've got a Clipper whose jersey goes up. Chris Paul, did, did he do it? I'm just putting Baron Davis up there personally. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but like Chris Paul, the, the franchise unquestionably had its highest heights during the Chris Paul era. They were consistent. Right. Maybe they didn't get to the conference finals, but they were consistent playoff teams, won multiple playoff series while he was there. And yet, I don't know if his jersey goes up. I don't know if Chris Paul's jersey goes up anywhere. That's a sad thought. I was going to pivot to Chris. I mean, we we talked about LeBron a little bit and the Chris thing. I mean, that's understandable. Uh, you know, New Orleans, 
is debatable. Clippers is debatable. Um, Houston's certainly not happening, you know, and, and we're, it's either we're New Orleans or, or yeah. uh, the Clippers. I think Blake has a better yeah. chance with the Clippers because they drafted him. Right. You could be like, and he was, he introduced the Clippers as like a fun brand for yeah, the first I mean, you, you don't get Chris Paul to the Clippers without Blake. Yeah. Right. I mean, every, every, whatever we have of the Clippers, Doc Rivers going there and, and sort of giving them legitimacy, whatever the Clippers became, is because they drafted Blake Griffin. And I'm going to give myself credit. I wrote that he was going to change the the course of the Clippers off seeing him in a summer league game. I, I go up to summer league in Vegas and he's flying all over the place and dunking and you've got people jumping out of their seats. And I said, I might really regret this one day, but I really think he's going to change things for the Clippers. Then he got Versus hurt and misses rookie season, right? He got hurt, misses his yeah, rookie season. Oh, yeah. His yeah. entire rookie season. Doesn't play, he gets hurt in a preseason game and misses his entire rookie season. And then he comes back and they don't make the playoffs, but he just feels like he's going to be the next thing. Yeah. Right. And Chris Paul doesn't sign off on a trade to the Clippers without Blake Griffin there. And, and they, they were successful. And, and I think as, as we talk about Chris Paul, just sometimes just being successful is good enough. Maybe he's not a champion. Maybe he never will win a championship. But when you look at his track record now, Goes to the Clippers, elevates them. You know, the the basically the playoff history of the New Orleans versions of the Hornets slash Pelicans is thanks to Chris Paul. And and then takes a takes Houston to the brink of knocking off the Warriors. Yeah. And then an Oklahoma City team that they're not even trying to get to the playoffs, right? They're thinking about long term. And he gets them to the playoffs and now he's got Phoenix doing what he's doing. So I, I, I keep talking about this. There just has to be some type of category. Floor raiser. Great floor raiser. Floor raiser, uh, yeah. <laughs> no. It's funny. I mean, the Redeem team, you know, you you could kind of nickname it the Banana Boat Squad for one because <laughs> those guys, you know, obviously were friends from there and, and a long time forward. With Chris, he's doing it again in Phoenix, man. Like the OKC thing, the only unfortunate part of that experience and then the same thing applies to him in Phoenix is that I'll be honest, from a media standpoint, it's unfortunate for him, you know, for him and, and those teams because they don't get the exposure that they probably deserve. His story with the Thunder was a better story than we kind of gave it credit for. Uh, when he first went in that deal, for one, Slater, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but let's not kind of underestimate how bad it wasn't a matter of how bad Chris's reputation had gotten in Houston, but there was a lot of stink on him after the rocket situation because James. Was that on him or on James though? Well, at the time we didn't know what to think. And so now it's certainly, I think an indictment of James, you know, but it required, I think the hypothetical for me is this. If Chris would not have handled the OKC situation in the way that he did. If he just would have played the card of, I'm too good for this spot, so let's do a buyout and let me go jump on another squad. No, I'm going to be okay in OKC. And let's not also gloss over that from a personal level, he's an extremely passionate family guy and his family's in LA and he stays in OKC and he focuses on the job and they have a fantastic year. They damn near beat the Rockets in the playoffs, which would have been a hell of a story. But he made the most of that situation. Oh, by the way, you know, was in a position of leadership during the bubble, not only getting the bubble, you know, to actually work, but from a social justice standpoint, did a lot of great things. So the optics around Chris all the way through there are fantastic. And then he goes to Phoenix, where we've been waiting for somebody to show up and help Devin Booker out for the longest time. And they're not only, I mean, tell me you, what you guys thought going into the year. The expectation, I think, was, all right, Suns have got to be a playoff team now. And it's like, wait, I'm sorry, what? They're 
They're top four. They're pushing for top two. They, I mean, this is insane with DeAndre Aiden not even being that good yet. Uh, he's well, their he's defense, been solved. Their defense is so much better than I thought it would be. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize their defense was going to be this far ahead. And Bridges has really come along and has become a hell of a yeah. player at this age. And he's going to be really good. I mean, he's really been there. People kind of thought they had their big three with Booker and Paul and Aiton, and and Bridges has really been their their number three guy this year. I mean, he has been spectacular for them. Has been an incredible help. The weird thing with Chris Paul, he's such an enigma. Like, if you look at any given point in his career, the narrative has either been that he is, as Charles Barkley always says, the best leader in the NBA, or he's a locker room cancer and you got to get him out of there. And there's no in between. I mean. He he goes right, to the Clippers right. and it's like Chris Paul's going to teach these young guys, DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin, how to win. And then they have bad locker rooms for years. And now you talk to especially the vets on that team, J.J. Redick, Jamal Crawford. Those guys talk about it and they talk about how uh, kind of troubled those locker rooms were. And, and, you know, Redick has talked about it a lot, how he has regrets about how they handled their inner workings of that team and how they think they could have done more if they just figured out a way to, you know, kind of come together and, and not had those terrible moments against Houston and Oklahoma city in the playoffs. And then he goes to Houston and all of a sudden things are great again until they're not. And now, like you said, Sam, there's a lot of stink on him and he's got to go to Oklahoma city and he might get traded and who knows what's going to happen in Oklahoma city. Cause they're trying to lose. And now all of a sudden he does what everybody thought he was supposed to do with the Clippers seven years prior or whatever it was, where he teaches Shea Gilgis Alexander and everybody else how to win. He's doing it again in Phoenix. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like the stuff with Chris Paul, I think he's probably just been the same person the whole time. And the way that we're looking at him has has changed depending on the context and depending on the people who he's having relationships with. So, so we were we were talking about the the Nets earlier, and uh, I view Kevin Durant as like the massive what if of of the East with his injury and, and just how much that's dragging along. We talked about the Lakers. I view Davis in a similar situation, like you know, with the unknown of his injury, um, his return probably pretty soon, but it's dragged out so long. Like what Ja was saying earlier, like if Lakers, if the Lakers are healthy, yes, we view them as a favorite, but that seems like a pretty big what if to me. And if we consider the Lakers an unknown. I mean, the Suns, to me, like, do you believe in the Suns more than the Clippers right now? Do you believe in the Suns more than the Jazz right now? I think they're right in that conversation. What? You want to put the Nuggets? You want to put the Denver Nuggets? Yeah, they're starting now with Gordon. Gordon looked pretty good. We can talk about that. And they're playing. Yeah. Yeah, they're playing well before Gordon, too. I think Denver's got to be there. It's hard hard to put Phoenix in. And one thing, I think teams eventually, and and I think this was part of the problem with, with the Clippers, too you realize the limitations and, and we, we spend a lot of time praising Chris Paul. To me, the limitation is it's hard, if not impossible, I always say to win a championship if your best player is my height and I'm about six feet, you know, for those guys not on the podcast listening that have never seen me or met me in person, you know, and Chris Paul is around my height, a little taller, but it's hard to win in the playoffs. And, and you saw how even Steph Curry at six, three, couldn't carry the the Warriors in the playoffs, right? And the, the fact that even when they've won three championships with him, he's never been the finals MVP. You get to those deep stages of the playoffs, it's hard to impose your will on a game if you're under 6'5 or 6'6. Six, six. Look at the history of finals MVPs, the guys below 6'5 six, six, or so. Um, I think Isaiah Thomas, um, you know, Wade isn't that tall. Tony Parker got one. But generally you need a guy to be Kevin Durant or Kobe or Michael Jordan said so like six, six and up right to, to, to just 
defensively have a presence to rebound all these things that come into play in the playoffs. And I wonder if that's going back to the Clippers. I always said they needed Blake Griffin to be the best player. If they want to be a championship, he had to evolve in the best player. And there were, there were times when he could, and then there were times where he couldn't meet that challenge. Like there was that one series against the Spurs where it seemed like he kept having the ball late game situations, one possession situations. And a couple of times he couldn't even get a shot up. He'd have a turnover, you know, like how many Blake Griffin game-winning moments can you think of in the playoffs? So, like, is he a guy you could go to in the fourth quarter? But he needed to evolve into that, and he couldn't. And so, to me, I think the fact that no one else could take the mantle of best player on the Clippers from Chris Paul is one of the reasons that it didn't work there. Yeah, the Suns would probably need Devin Booker to just go ballistic in the playoffs, which he could. You know, Devin Booker, that's kind of the idea of the Suns, right? Bring in Chris Paul, he'll steady you and guide Devin Booker to superstar status. And and we'll see. I mean, as, as we rank who can prove a lot as these playoffs arrive, Devin Booker's got to be right up there. Jay Crowder, by the way, kind of low-key kind of low key, uh addition to that squad. They played Miami recently. And, and I think somebody on air joked about how, you know, Jimmy Butler was probably looking up at, at Pat Riley saying, why we let this dude get away. Uh, he's been pretty good with them. For me, here's another interesting dynamic. I think to watch as we break down the title contenders, you talk about the nets and some of the what ifs with them. You talk about AD on the Lakers side with the Lakers. And I'm trying not to overthink this, but you know, Jay, you know me well enough to know that I'm always fascinated by the just the human personal dynamics in the locker room, right? Well, they're coming out of this trade deadline season where if Dennis Schroeder and Contavious Caldwell Pope read the paper, so to speak, they know that they were very far out there when it comes to the Lakers and their trade talks. That Rob Palinka clearly was concerned enough about, you know, specifically it's the fact that Schroeder and the Lakers are uh, far apart on extension talks and Palinka is obviously concerned about losing him going forward. But bottom line, if you're trying to focus as a group on the task at hand and stay unified, stay connected right now, I wonder if any of that stuff makes its way into their locker room because they didn't ultimately do anything involving those guys, but it's just widely known that they were willing to move them. And Caldwell Pope in general, I actually think that one is is quasi-mutual in terms of you know him potentially looking for a, a, a different spot. So in terms of chemistry, as far as you know, I said connectivity, how does that come into play in addition to the injury stuff? Because they are going to be going an exceptionally long time without LeBron on the floor. And that's a lot to ask with a very little runway going into the postseason, I think, once they're fully healthy. I think you look at how they were able to compartmentalize during the, the playoffs last year, right? Because Dwight Howard, his contract status was uncertain. I think yep. Caldwell Pope up as a free agent after last year or two. Or was it? <sighs> I don't know why I'm drawing a blank. Did he resign? Offseason, right? So you're probably right. I'll confirm. We're talking about Caldwell Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was a free agent. He resigned. Yeah, yeah, so so he was uncertain. He played really well, especially in the finals. Third best player. That. Third best player in the playoffs for the Lakers, which is crazy. Yeah. So if you look at how those guys performed under those circumstances then, and the guys you were talking about, Sam, I think are old enough, have been around enough. Shooters on his third, fourth team. Now, you know, so I think they get the league and they understand sure. to this point that their feelings aren't going to be heard if they were involved in trade talks. And I think they can narrow down the focus. Maybe it helped that they were in the bubble last year and the Lakers, there was very unusual circumstances. And you heard Jared Dudley talk a lot about it, how they came together, right? They took right. advantage of, of those strange circumstances and just really bonded and spent time together. Maybe that allowed them to overcome the uncertainty. Maybe that's gone away now. Maybe 
No, I think I probably I think you got it right the first time. To be honest, I think the the age and the maturity is going to come into play. It's very different by like if you wanted to compare it to another Lakers situation with a, bu- a bunch of young dudes when they did the AD trade. You guys remember with Lonzo, Brandon Ingram, all those guys knowing that they were out there. That did seem to impact their locker room. When and I remember when Magic came out, basically was like, I don't get over it. It's part of the NBA, you know. And and he got criticized at the time for not being sensitive enough to that dynamic, but. You know, I think you're probably right. These vets at this stage of their careers with the opportunity to get, you know, either their first or another chip, um, that's the kind of thing that, that is going to crystallize your focus. Um, uh, let's go down a, a different road here because I like the idea that we're just kind of ha- highlighting the Redeem Team dudes who are still doing it. Mellow's season is, is really interesting to me because, you know, we've gone from Mellow's washed, Mellow's done, Mellow should retire which was not the universal opinion, but it was very loud. Then it was, okay, Houston's a charity case type thing. They're just going to, you know, get them back in the fold. Didn't work out there. Even the Portland chapter, you know, it, it was mostly successful last season, but then it felt like, you know, it was going to be just a, a little bit more of a proper goodbye tour. And now, you know, you look up and the calendar and, you know, keeps going and the months keep flying by and he's a legitimate part of a team that is doing some pretty good things in the West. How have you guys seen the mellow renaissance here? Well, I was so happy just last year that it worked out so well. And then I was so happy that he re-signed, that he didn't just use that to rehabilitate his image, that it was a good fit. And I don't think early career mellow would have been content to stay in Portland. He would have had eyes for, for a bigger stage. Right but at this stage, hey, I came here. It worked. I'm happy. I'm content. Let's let's run it back. And I, it's funny. I was I was. You guys know we're, we're all very selfish in this business, right? So I, I was rooting for him as we were negotiating and trying to get him to talk to us for the podcast. That you know I wanted to see the Blazers win and I wanted to see him doing well, so he'd be in a good mood. So he he want to talk to us, and then he talked to us, and he was really great, uh, especially talking about Kobe. And so then I wanted this, him to succeed karmically for, for the, the great content that he provided for us. So I'm very personally invested in him for, sure. for this season. <laughs> but I, I've also just enjoyed, um, I've enjoyed the way he has been able to rework himself. And, and people were so critical. Some of the things that the questions that were asking about the players going to the net, people asked whether Carmelo could ever do that. And he's shown that, yes, he can. It's obviously Damian Lillard's team. And it's funny, and I watched, and I, I think – there's times where Lillard's like, let me do this. And I think Carmelo says like, Hey, Carmelo Anthony over here. I'm still, I'm still Carmelo. Right. <laughs> uh, you see these people I'm moving past in the all time scoring list. Right. Like I, I see a little bit of that, but, but I think ultimately it's not that big of a deal because Carmelo recognizes that it's Damian Lillard's team. He's not here to try to take the team from. Damian yeah. So Lillard. especially late in games too. I mean, you see him, when he's on the floor late in close games and Portland plays a lot of close games. I mean, I think, I think they're, they're the team that is outplaying. They have a negative net rating right now and they're 10 games over 500 and those things do not correspond. Uh, they have won a lot of close games. And by the way, if you look at Lillard's numbers in, in clutch time, they're outrageous. When, yeah. when the game's within. You missed a free throw yet in I, clutch time? When I saw the numbers a couple I, weeks ago, he I don't think so. I think he's averaging about 50 points per 36 minutes during clutch time. Like literally, <laughs> that's not hyperbole. That is literally <laughs> what he is averaging. Uh, 
This is Damian Wilt yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely outrageous. And, and Melo is, is deferring in those moments. He's, he's coming off the bench, which he did in Houston. But, you know, I feel like we never really got to find out exactly how much of an issue it was. And yeah, were you there? You were there. I was covering City, that right? team. I was at that press conference when yeah. Melo sat there. I was you too. were there for that. Yeah. Yeah. Melo sat there, there yeah. and said, I'm not coming off the bench. That's out of the question. <laughs> I think it was the Athletics' Eric yeah. Horn who asked the question. Well, that was and a different one. Eric. That was that was pre-game. Okay, I'm remembering the one where where where. There we go, Sam. That's the there's the. <laughs> there Fred, it is, uh, Jay. Every every week, Fred has a Wi-Fi issue. So, so that was the one. one that you're there thinking of, Sam, which is really classic as well. Was was media day yes. that same season? So so Mello really bookended that season right. unbelievably because the on media day the first day. <laughs> Eric Horn, our colleague now at the Athletic at the time was at the Oklahoman, uh, asked him if he'd be willing to come off the bench in the upcoming season. This was like two days after they traded for him because they traded for him, I think, on the Saturday before media day. And media day was that Monday. Yep. And he asked him if he'd be willing to come off the bench. And Mel said, who, me? <laughs> and then yelled at Paul George across the room. Hey, P, they want me to come off the bench. <laughs> yeah, like it, Paul got asked the question. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And he, yeah, so no, he yelled at Paul in the mm-hmm. back of the room and he's like, yo, P, they're talking about me coming off the bench. And it was funny in the moment. Um, man, you guys are taking me back a little bit now. That weekend was actually pretty wild for me from a coverage standpoint. I'd come into OKC uh, already having lined up a sit down with Paul George at his new house in OKC and was looking forward to that. Right. And that was, you know, with all due respect, Fred and Slater to your old stopping grounds, like, I'm going to OKC when I have a reason to go to OKC and I had a reason. So I'm ready to go sit down with Paul and then the mellow trade happens. And for a minute, Paul's camp was waffling a bit on whether or not he still wanted to do it. He wanted to process the mellow situation. What did it mean? And they almost pulled the plug on it and they didn't thankfully. And so it ended up being great. It was like the first time Paul had responded to the trade, but you know, mellow still, at that time was considered you just added another future Hall of Fame piece. And he, he hadn't kind of lost that that spotlight around him uh quite traded yet. for Ennis Cantor, I believe, who he's now uh you know teammates with in Portland. Um don't you think he needed that failure in Oklahoma City? Don't you think he needed the league to prove that it had passed him by defensively? He wasn't, you know, a starter, a, a top level player anymore. I think he needed the Houston one too. It doesn't you know need what I mean? To be this extreme though, to be out of the league. Yeah, yeah. I'm not out. He should have been yeah. signed, but it, to me, it seemed like he came back to Portland and not only like more willing for the bench role, obviously more willing for like a secondary scoring, almost spot up shooting at times, which he could be very good at. Right. He's 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 uh, very lethal. As that. And also seems like he got in better shape. He's a he's a better defender now in Portland. I'm not saying he's a good defender, but he's a better defender now in Portland than he was four years ago, I would say. I'll say this, though, and I, I think teams got a little too smart and too ahead of themselves and. I kept thinking that Houston game seven against the Warriors when they missed, was it 22 or 27 straight three-pointers? 27. A legendary number in that Warriors. 27. You think Melo's not making one in that stretch? The Warriors are very much targeting him all series. That was such a series that was about targets. No, but he he was gone by then. Yeah, yeah, he was gone. I'm saying he would have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you remember that – 
Maybe, but I, I just got to feel yeah. like you're not missing 27 straight three-pointers if Melo's on your squad. You're just right. not. Yeah, I mean, Sam would know better than me, but the problem there seemed to be he just he didn't seem ready to accept what he was as a player yet. I there was some, listen, I don't have full clarity on it, but as Chris Paul has kind of helped us understand, there was a lot of messiness happening behind the scenes during that time. You know what I mean? Chris has been open publicly about the fact that he claims Daryl Morey said, you know, that he was not going to trade him. I'll never forget. And this kind of speaks to Mello and his level of trust or, or distrust in that group during that experience. But but I remember talking to Daryl at the Players Awards, I guess maybe a week before they traded him to Oklahoma City. And Daryl was talking about how, oh, I actually just had Chris in my hotel room breaking down the roster. Like all this noise about Chris and James being, you know, kind of at odds and Chris going anywhere, that's garbage. And I think he on the record had, had even said he will be our starter at the beginning of next season. And then it's like a week later, he's out. So if you're mellow, I, I think, you know, that for a lot of different reasons, that ultimately was a, an uncomfortable time for him. Can I just say, speaking of messiness in Houston, I cannot believe there's serious consideration for James Harden as the most valuable player this season when he just torpedoed the Rockets at the start of the year. Like, how can you be the most valuable if you wrecked one franchise? And and, and he's undoubtedly boosted the Nets with or without KD. He's playing great. He's become the, the heart of that team in a lot of ways, right? And he has. We've talked about taking step backs. He's shown willingness to do that. But we can't forget that this is the same year that he donned it at the start. And the Rockets are just left reeling in the wake of, of what he initiated. I like the top, man. I don't know where I land, J.A. Like, I, I'm with you. I had been leaning towards the giving James a pass because it was only 14 games. And just the idea that basketball-wise, you know, it was a relatively small part of the season. I'll be honest, and I know in the media – we're always afraid to admit that we're human and that, you know, that we're not robots who make these picks on, on awards. But the other night when he comes out and says, I am the MVP, I almost felt for me like this kind of like, damn, man, I was about to come your way. And now that's annoying. Like, I don't, I, I don't like that tone. That. I mean, yeah. you, you can't be the MVP without believing wholeheartedly that you are the MVP. So Right. But so. that's also a like to your point, that's a lot of, you know, lack of self-awareness about James. We didn't forget the Houston thing and how, bad that was, but it, it's a lot to unpack because if he goes to Brooklyn and they're healthy and he, you know, and he's one third of that superstar trio, I'm not even looking his direction. They have been through so much that it's hard not to look at that and say, damn, they're right there near the top of the East. And in the West, you just have all this, this muddying of the waters in terms of who should be getting it. To me, Jokic is very high up on that list. Uh, LeBron's falling now because of the injury. He's unofficially probably going to be out. You know, and, and so I think Dame's got to be in there, but but it's a it's a really I fascinating. Jay, I let me, over hard, Jay, let me ask you I this uh, because I've I've thought about that Harden stuff too, and to me, right now, Jokic is the MVP. Uh, the the Harden stuff is really difficult to overlook, but do you factor that in differently on All NBA? Because that's where it it kind of hurts me. I feel like All NBA. When we're we're talking less about value and more about actual performance on the floor, and and it really it his case for MVP doesn't confuse me. I am on the same side as as you are when it comes to the season that Harden has had, and it's not a moral thing. It's just that you're not that valuable if you're actively tanking your franchise. Right. That 
Right. Value, right. value to team, right? And the team he started right. with now is undoubtedly worse off for him. Um, I, that's a good point. I, I do distinguish. You know, when I was voting, like my criteria for most valuable player was different, I'd say especially for, for all rookie. You know, I didn't necessarily take team consideration in team performance into consideration for all rookie. And I, I think you can do the same with all NBA. I, I think you can have a losing record and be first team all NBA. I, I place a lot of value on the word value, right? And it's, it's such a subjective term, but I can, to me, I could easily, if I were sitting in your shoes with a vote, I could very easily separate my feelings about him as the most valuable player candidate versus him as an all NBA candidate. And, and I do think you, you take the value out of all NBA and that's just about performance. But I think value MVP takes other things into consideration. I define MVP as the person who has done the most to put his team into position to win a championship. Obviously you can't win a championship in the regular season, but you can put your, your team in position to win a championship. That's why to me, I actually, I did vote for Westbrook. That, that was my one exception the year he won it um, as a lower seed. But generally to me, you got to be a top like two or three seed to, to be the MVP in my book. Um, Jay, not to make this the, the the Rockets deep dive pod, but you kind of got me thinking down that road now. When you look at Harden's exit in Houston, you know, what percentage do you put in his lap versus, you know, on the Rockets side, uh, there is a, definitely a part of me that is like, listen, they botched the D'Antoni departure. And a lot, I mean, listen, Mike, Mike bears responsibility there too, because Mike doesn't like not being liked. Uh, Mike doesn't like, you know, having his hands dirty. And the truth that I don't think Mike wanted to necessarily share publicly was that for one, I think he looked at that roster and said, this thing is not going to last much longer. And that part gets completely lost in the narrative. But, you know, the domino effect of Mike leaving, Daryl leaving, and then James looking around going, what in the hell are we doing here? And, the, you know, with, with Tillman Fertitta in the middle of it all. I can see that. And I, I can understand and relate to it that if I'm James Harden, I say the guy who traded for me and the guy who surrounded me consistently surrounded me with, with talented players, he's gone. The coach that I flourished under and won the MVP under is gone. Um, you know, this isn't the same owner. This isn't what I signed up for. Right. I, I get that. Um, there's ways they handle it more professionally though. Uh, I, I think you looked at Chris Paul. I, I think the way Chris Paul handled his departure from new Orleans where I think he notified them. He kept it quiet. Right. And I think he kept went out there and did his thing. And, um, you know, it's not his fault. The whole thing blew up and basketball reasons and all that stuff. But I feel like he handled his departure well from New Orleans. Um, didn't make it blow up. He didn't blow up the team the way Harden seemed to blow up the, uh, the Rockets. Also, how many games is LeBron going to probably end up missing like 15, 16, MB, I don't know, somewhere around that range. Like Harden essentially not only missed 15 games of the net season because he didn't arrive till what game, whatever, 15, 16 probably. Like he set the Houston Rockets into being, what, the second worst team in basketball now? They had a 20-game losing streak recently. I mean, he completely cratered them to the point that, I, I mean, I wouldn't disqualify him completely. I mean, if he was so clearly the MVP, I think it's okay to vote for him. But as we talk about how close this race is, to me, like, that's an easy check mark off the list if it's close. And it's right. close. Oh, yeah. I think for sure it could be the kind of thing that, that separates two guys that are neck and neck. Uh, Jay, we're going to get you out on this. Um, we we kind of touched on it. The Redeem Team pod that you and Jack did, 
Uh, I'm a sucker because I love both you guys. And so I can't wait to listen to it and, and, and just get the audio version of both of your styles and the way you do your thing. And I don't want you to give too much away, but I know the way you think enough to know in the way you work that, you know, you had moments during this project where, you know, your eyebrows go up a little bit and you're like, this is good stuff right here. And you're excited because you're getting to the real stuff and you're understanding what happened back then. And when a team is covered, the way that that team was covered 2008, you know, online media is up and running. You know, there was a lot of saturation when it comes to that coverage. So it's not easy to find new angles, to find new kind of layers to that story. Uh, what stories, you know, anecdotes come to mind for you during this process where you were like, all right, we're doing something cool here. Honestly, there were a lot of those moments, which is a good sign. And I, I don't think I'm over hyping. Um, Carmelo really, changed the, the, the tone and the tenure of it. When we talked to him, he, he just, he spoke with a lot of heart. It, it, it felt like Carmelo's really the heart of this. Uh, uh, Jason Kidd was great. And, you know, the Phil Jackson changed things. It, it's weird. It, it's almost like, a, again, like a side project, the, the Phil and Kobe discussions. But what we learned, the, the type of stuff that wasn't seen in a lot of the coverage was uh, the meetings and the practice. It's funny. I joke that it's a story about meetings and practices, but just some interesting meetings. Shashevsky going to Akron and meeting with LeBron and talk about, okay, are you going to sign off on all these guys we want to bring in? Uh, Shashevsky, you know, having to meet with Kobe because Kobe's starting to shoot a little bit too much and people are questioning the shot selection and like this might not work if he keeps us on. And like Shashevsky telling us he was kind of scared going into this meeting. Right. Um, Jason Kidd telling us how cool it was when Krzyzewski gets up there and starts swearing in front of everybody and dropping MF bombs. And, <laughs> and um, so all like everything that came out of me, we, we, we spend probably two minutes throughout the entire course of the 10 episodes talking about basketball, right. And stuff that happens on the court. I won't say it's that short, but, but most, a lot of it is about these meetings and, and the relationships that were formed and the discussions that were held, and this might not sound that exciting, but to me, it was fun to go behind those doors, so to speak, and to, to let them in, to, for them to let us in as to how they reached this agreement and how they made this work. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, it sounds easy, but it, it's a lot of difficulty. It's a big challenge, as all you guys know, to make all these egos work and to make this team come together. And so hearing these behind the scenes stories of meetings and bus rides and, and boat trips, I mean, we got airplane, I think we got every mode of transportation covered by the end of this podcast. And so hearing all that stuff, banana boats, any banana boats in there? We didn't get the banana <laughs> boat, but I think you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy hearing this stuff too. And again, it's guys that you've talked to all these guys, but we get them in a, we get them in a reflective mode. And that's what's cool. And that, that's what's fun about doing this is guys talking about one of the fate, one of the things that emerges is just what a special memory this was for everyone involved. And that fondness and that that warmth that they have for this period of their lives, I think really comes through. I love it. The Dream Team Tapes, Season 2, Kobe LeBron and the Redeem Team. Make sure you subscribe to that. Jay, I did not give you the uh, the proper Northwestern title on the intro and I need to make amends on that front associate professor and director of sports journalism. Um, how's the, the college life, by the way, you've been doing this for quite a while now and, and I'm excited. It seems like you built it up pretty well out there. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's been challenging um, this zoom year, but 
we've got some good things, I think, coming our way for the, this quarter and then looking forward to next year. I'm, I'm looking forward to like just getting back to normal and being able to deliver everything that, that we normally can deliver and taking advantage of all the, the Northwestern resources. Um, but I, I give our students a lot of credit for, for being troopers throughout this challenging, challenging year. No question. Thank you, my friend. Great to see your face. And like you said, we'll, we'll get to see you in person one of these days. But congrats on the project. We're excited to hear it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to see you all. Likewise, man.